Go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. Going to continue our our verse-by-verse study today. We believe going through the Bible verse-by-verse is the best way to fully equip us to do the work of the Lord in our lives and experience everything he has for us. So, last couple weeks, I don't know if you noticed this, but there definitely seemed to be a theme the Lord was trying to teach us as a church. A couple weeks ago when we were starting Acts 21, we were looking at the example of Philip. Uh, Philip, who started out as a deacon in the church and then got, uh, because of the persecution that rose against the early church, kind of got spread out and was a uh, an evangelist um, going to preach to tons of people in Samaria and a lot of fruit from that people getting saved and then also just going to preach to the one person, the Ethiopian eunuch in the middle of nowhere and leading that guy to Christ. And then we see him there in Acts 21 as a faithful father raising up uh, four godly daughters that were prophetesses. And uh, we talked about how what we see there in his life is an example to us is the dude was faithful. Just whatever it is the Lord wanted him to do, whenever he wanted him to do it, he just was faithful to obey. And you saw God be able to do great things in his life and do a lot of different things in his life because of that. And then last week, we had a visitor. We had the Viegas's Pastor Son, his wife Stacy, who uh, faithfully um, he pastors the church down in Calvary Chapel, Acapulco, a ministry we've supported for many years, and lots of great fruit down there. And the theme of his sermon was faithfulness. If you guys remember um, him sharing that verse in First Corinthians four one through two, where Paul says, "This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ." In stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Or that if you want God to be able to accomplish the things in your life that he wants to do in you and through you, the most important thing you can do is be faithful to be obedient to his word. In what he wants for you. Amen? And I think you might agree with me that, whereas I'm sure every single person in this room, if I said, do you want to be faithful to the Lord? We would say, absolutely, right? As a follower of Jesus Christ, that's like kind of Christianese 101. But it's a lot easier to say than to do. Putting that into practice or remaining faithful to God. I guess that's the best way to think of it. Like it's not just about being faithful, but remaining faithful. That's the hard thing to do, especially when things don't go the way you want or you face some sort of adversity or things just aren't as you expected because then the tendency is to want to quit because you've become discouraged or or whatnot. And so it's something the Lord has to really teach us over our relationship and following him and learning from him that 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 continued faithfulness that consistent faithfulness not just doing something and then going out of it or quitting but just being where the lord wants you as long as he wants you until he tells you to do something else and i believe we have the opportunity to learn from the example paul sets in this text today how to do this gleaning from examples in his own life 
Paul being a guy that seemed to be faithful in, in as well as like Philip, just in everything the Lord asked him to do and consistently faithful. So we're going to look at examples from his life. And then we're also going to look at a text from Leviticus that I believe gives us an example of things that can be detrimental in your life if you want to be faithful to God. So when we went through Acts uh, last time, we were in verses 1 through 9 of Acts 21. And we saw Paul and his companions. They're still on their way to Jerusalem despite this continued warning uh, through the Holy Spirit, through other believers, that he was going to face persecution when he went there. But it doesn't waver him. He's determined to go. And we left off with Paul and his companions uh, visiting Philip in his household in Caesarea. And so that's where we're going to pick it up. Let me read the section we're going to be in today, and then I'll pray, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. So starting in verse 10, it says, While we were staying for many days, this is in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God. Again, we just want to make sure our focus is where it should be, Lord. We don't want to be distracted. We want to make sure our our hearts, if you will, are ready to receive what it is you want to say. We want to be listening with attentive ears. Think of Samuel when you spoke to him in the middle of the night. and He's like, here I am, Lord. That's what we want, that attentiveness. Ready to receive and, and, and learn from you. Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, we're to allow you to renew our minds, not stay conformed to this world. You've set us free from this world and the deceptions of it. And so we want you to change our minds to have right thinking and to live that out in our lives so we can experience the blessedness that comes with obedience. So Lord, may you change us so that we're more like you than when we came in here today when we leave, Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. So verse 10 says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus, if you guys have been tracking through Acts with us, he should sound familiar in Acts eleven twenty-eight. He's the same believer that correctly prophesied that there would be a, a famine in Jerusalem. So we see him come back here from Jerusalem to meet with Paul and his companions. And it says in verse 11, in coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews, probably referencing the Jewish religious leaders at Jerusalem, will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So this believer named Agabus, who had this spiritual gift of prophecy, he comes from Jerusalem, 
gives Paul this word of the Lord, an illustrated word of the Lord, like actually giving him a physical demonstration of this persecution he'd face in Jerusalem. Similar to, if you guys know the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God would do that through them too. He'd say, do this so that you captivate the people's attentions and they really listen to what you're saying because they weren't listening to what they were saying. And so he gave them a visual demonstration and try to captivate their attention. So this guy does that. And it says in verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart for I'm, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus, not just to die, but for Jesus Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now, I want you to note, whereas the prophecy regarding what would happen to Paul in Rome definitely appears to be truly from the Holy Spirit. And If you keep following with us through Acts, you're going to see that because what is being said, these persecutions that Paul's going to face, he's actually going to face them when he gets to Jerusalem. But this additional advice given in verse 12 by the believers there, even by Paul's companions, I mean, his right-hand men that are traveling with him and ministering with him, they're given the same advice of urging him not to go to Jerusalem. That appears to be human wisdom rather than from the Lord, based off of their perception of what was being told to Paul. You know, basically, bad things are going to happen to you. That can't be the Lord's will for you then. That's what it appears to be. Which we can be guilty of sometimes too. And we need to be careful of this. Because we can absolutely be giving people the right counsel in telling them what God's word says. But then I can have this bad habit of trying to explain to them how that counsel practically applies to a specific situation in their life. And I'm going above and beyond what it's saying by doing that. And we got to be careful of that. Honestly, when I am counseling people, if there's specific things, should I do this? Should I not do that? Should I, you know, take this job or not stay in this job? Whatever, specific things in their lives. If there's not a black and white answer to that in scripture, I try very hard not to give them counsel specifically in what to do, but rather to say, you need to pray and seek God and wait for him to give you an answer. Because you have a relationship with him. Why is he going to talk to me and tell you what to do? You seek him. This is what the word, these are the principles that we see in the word, but the specific thing you're going to have to seek him to do. To avoid doing this very thing, adding my own interpretation of how something applies to their life and risking the chance of telling them to do something that is wrong and leading them astray. That's what I want to avoid. And I believe that's what's going on here. And I say that because Paul is still resolved to go to Jerusalem no matter what might happen to him, even if that meant dying, as it says in verse 13. And of of course, Paul could be wrong. He might be resisting what God really wants him to do. We all hear from the Lord incorrectly in our lives and we make mistakes. But typically, somebody won't have that type of determination to be faithful to what God is telling him to do 
especially if they know it's going to lead to something difficult, unless they are absolutely certain God is the one telling them to do that, all right? Because he's not saying you're going to go to Jerusalem and all these people are going to get saved. No, what he's saying you're going to go to Jerusalem. But here's what's going to happen. And you need to be ready for this. You're going to face extreme persecution there. Most people aren't going to go into that willingly unless they know for certain that God is telling them. And Paul actually alludes to that back in Acts 19.21 and Acts 22, where he says that he was resolved in the spirit or constrained by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Basically, what he's saying there is that God has told me to do this and I can't help but do what he's telling me to do. All right. So he believed that he was adamant about that. And I believe that eventually the other believers recognize this, too. They see that despite their continued warnings, man, Paul must really believe this is what God's telling him to do because he's adamant to going. And so they basically just trusted to God. You know, they're like, all right, well, then let the Lord's will be done. And they don't depart from him. They're like, well, we're going to go with you. If you're that adamant, we're going to go with you and support you. And after all, they can do this because what Paul's wanting to do, it's not disobeying God's word in any way, right? I mean, he wants to go to Jerusalem because he has a heart to preach to his people. He's going to tell them about Jesus. So obviously, that is in line with God's word. It's not a bad thing that he wants to do. So in essence, they're like, okay, well, it's not sin. Maybe we're wrong. We're just going to trust this to God. You know, God's going to use it in some way or another. But what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at is this amazing faithfulness displayed by Paul here and really throughout his life of being determined to be obedient to God, to do what God is telling him to do in his life, no matter what that might mean. Whether it's being thrown in prison, whether it's dying, as he says here. And it's important to understand that when he says this, when he's saying, even if I get thrown in prison, even if I die, it's not lip service. It's not like just me saying, oh, I love my life, my wife so much and my kids that I give my life for them. Like, he, he has example after example where he really demonstrated this in his life. He goes through a, lo- a list in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. I'm going to read through it all just so you guys understand that he's not just talking trash here. I mean, he really means what he says. I will do whatever the Lord wants me to, no matter what it costs me. He says in verse uh, 23, starting in verse 23, are there servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder. I have been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number. I can't even remember how many times and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. I love that because he's like, all these things sound really horrible and dramatic. And he's like, even worse, I worry about you guys. That's the hardest thing. 
watching you guys and making sure you're all right and making sure you're following Jesus. But if anyone had a reason to become discouraged and quit ministry or burn out, I would say it would be Paul. Because there was nothing easy about his walk with Jesus. But here's the thing. He remained faithful through all of it. And the question I want to answer today is why? How did he remain faithful like that? And so to answer that, we're going to turn to a passage in Leviticus 9. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Because we're going to be in a a big enough chunk here. It's worthy to kind of go to. We'll have it up on the board too, I think. As long as the guy's got it up there. So I'm not going to talk about, like spend a lot of time developing this. But this is the nation of Israel. As we sang about earlier, they've been brought, Eric talked about this, really God lined this up. So they've been brought out of um, Egypt. God saved them and brought them out. And he hasn't brought them into the promised land yet, but he's spent like uh, some time preparing them uh, for being his people, like telling them the law, telling them the things they needed to abide by, how to stay close to him, giving them all these these uh, rituals and ceremonies so they they could stay close to him. And one of those things was um, giving them a place to come to worship. Like, we have this place to come and worship God together, the church. And he started out by giving them the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this place where God's presence would dwell. And they had just completed the tabernacle, this place to gather and worship God. All right? And so this is where we're going to start in Leviticus 9, 23 through 24. And it says, after that... Aaron raised his hands toward the people and blessed them. And then after presenting the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering, he stepped down from the altar. And then Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle. And when they came back out, they blessed the people again. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. Fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when the people saw this, they shouted with joy and fell face down on the ground. Now, that is probably the most impressive grand opening you will ever see. All right. They've got this place to come worship God and fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. And I mean, a visual representation of God. And they do the right thing. They fall down and worship. All right. But then it says in Leviticus 10.1, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. And in this way, they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different than he had commanded. So Aaron, he was the high priest, the one that was in charge of all of the ceremonial worship and sacrifices of God and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu would help because they were kind of the next in line. So they would help with some of those tasks. Um, and they take it upon themselves to take their scissors, which were an instrument that they would burn incense in. That was part of the, the, the worship of God. And they ignite some incense in those censers using their own fire to do so. Which if you're familiar with this section of scripture and what they're saying here is you know that that's not what God told them to do. If you look at Leviticus 16, 12, the priests were only supposed to ignite their uh, um, incense in those censers with fire that came from the altar. 
where the sacrifice was, but they used their own fire, okay? And the result was, in Leviticus 10.2, it says, so fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. And they died there before the Lord. Or these, literally, these guys literally were burned out in, in, for their ministry or in their ministry to the Lord. And within this section, I believe we find a warning involving three principles that basically can lead to you becoming discouraged or burned out or wanting to quit in ministry in lieu of, remember what we're talking about, being faithful to God. And the first question I want us to ask ourselves that I think we can glean from this is who are you presenting in ministry? If you're a note taker, I want you to write that down. Who are you presenting in ministry? It says in Leviticus 10.3, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all the people. And Aaron was silent. So what Moses is saying there is that your sons, you, those that have been chosen to be representatives of God, you're supposed to display his glory to those that are watching and not distract from it. And in essence, what he's telling Aaron here is, your sons were drawing glory and attention to themselves in their actions because rather than glorifying God, by obeying God, they took it upon themselves to do things differently than God had told them to do them. And we don't know exactly why this is, but it's kind of easy maybe to, to kind of put yourself in that place. And maybe they kind of got caught up in their positions and their status and the attention that came with that and started thinking, well, we're pretty spiritual. Look at us. We're more devoted than any of these other people. That's why we're kind of up front and we're serving the Lord in this way. We have that special anointing. And that pride and arrogance led to them thinking that, I know God says this is how we should do things, but that doesn't really apply to me. I'm the special exception. So this is the better way. I can just skip this and I'll just do what I want to do. Rather than being faithful to do what God had called them to do, they took it upon themselves to do what they wanted to do. And it ultimately led to them getting burnt, which is often what happens when we go out of the will of God or we don't do what he says. All right. Now contrast that with the ultimate example we have in Jesus Christ, who without exception, always glorified God in everything he did. You guys ever notice that? That every miracle Jesus does in the Bible, the people don't give glory to Jesus, even though he rightfully would, could receive it as being equal with God. But who do they give glory to? Everything he does, he does it in such a way, God is the one that gets glory. Let me give you an example. In Luke 17, 11 through 15, it says, as Jesus continued on toward Samaria or Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. And as he entered a village there, 10 men with leprosy stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And he looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, Praise God, not praise Jesus, praise God. Anything we do for God 
And remember this, it's only by his grace. Anything miraculous you do, any, any miraculous change in your life, it wasn't because of you. You didn't will yourself to do that. It's by God's grace. God is responsible for any great thing that is done in our lives or through our lives. And therefore, he's the only one that deserves recognition for it. And Paul got this. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. That's all of us. All right? Your insufficiency is what qualifies you to be used by God because he's more than sufficient to make up for it. And you know why Why that is? Because people don't need you and me to save them. They need God. And so the more deficient you are and the more sufficient he can be in your life, the more that he is the one that's going to be shining through you and they're going to see him. And that's what we want. That's something to be embraced. And it takes a lot of load off your shoulders. But it requires us to stay humble and relying on him and making sure that he is the one getting all the glory in our lives. And because Paul got this and sought to glorify God first and foremost in everything he did in his life, he was be able he was able to be led by God into that good, pleasing and perfect will uh, that he had for his life and remain faithful in it, even being willing to go in situations where he knew ahead of time there ain't no glory in this for me. I mean, he's being told to go to Jerusalem and he's being told you're not. No one's going to praise you there. They're going to persecute you. But yet he was willing to do it because he wasn't in it for his glory. He wasn't in it for his pat on the back or praise. You know, the Lord had to teach me this lesson before I actually could stand up here and actually enjoy being used this way by God. Because for a while, what comes with any position when you go in front of people is their opinions. (laughs) All right, because that's just our nature. And people like don't even know sometimes like what they're saying. I mean, it's not, they're trying to be helpful, constructive criticism. But like when you're trying your hardest to, to bless them and they have constructive, even constructive things to say, it, it, it feels like criticism and it's hard. But here's the thing. Over time, when I was just super discouraged because of this, the Lord, I, clear as day, I could hear him speak to me and say like, but you say it's for my glory. So why does it really matter what anyone thinks of you? If you're glorifying me, if you're teaching the word and you're accurately representing me, you're rightly dividing it, what else matters? If they don't like you, if they think that, oh, this teacher is better, what does it matter? It's about my glory. And that removed so much discouragement from life where I could get up here in such freedom and just preach the word and let God do the rest. It's to our benefit to understand that it's about God's glory, not ours. And inevitably, if we start to think we're hot stuff, like Nadab in Abihu, <laughs> we're going to start doing what we think is best instead of what the Lord has said is best. And the results won't be good. And they could very well lead to us getting 
burned out in ministry just like they did. So we want to be careful of that, right? Who are we presenting? It's about God and his glory only, okay? That's what will lead to you continuing to be faithfulness, faithful in your walk with the Lord. Next thing I want you to ask yourself, how are we handling tribulation in ministry? How are you handling the hard things in ministry? It says in Leviticus 10, 6, then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not show grief by leaving your hair uncombed or by tearing your clothes. If you do, you will die. And the Lord's anger will strike the whole community of Israel. However, the rest of the Israelites, your relatives, may mourn because of the Lord's fiery destruction of Nadab and Abihu. Now, that sounds pretty harsh at first. Like we see this and go like, dude, his kids got killed. He can't be upset about it. That's not what God's saying. You have to understand. Notice he says, don't show grief by doing these things that were a part of that culture that expressed great despair and grief. Basically what he's telling him, he's not telling him they can't mourn. He's saying that you guys are the ones representing me in front of the people. They see you and they're watching you. And there is a different way to mourn as a follower of God than there is for the rest of the world. And I want to make sure you guys are following that and, and displaying that to the people. You see, we all face adversity and difficulty in this life, right? If you've ever been taught that becoming a Christian also makes your life easy, that is heresy. That's not true, all right? Jesus is very honest with us in John 16, 33, where he says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you're gonna have trials and sorrows. You're not gonna have peace here. You can have peace in me here, but you, this world's gonna be hard. So peace with God is not the absence of difficulty, Okay, on this earth. It will be one day. That's why our hope's in heaven. But not here on this earth. But he says, you can take heart because I've overcome the world. You're not even a part of this world. You're a part of my kingdom now. That is what you're to take heart in. That's what you're to be encouraged in, okay? But because we're told ahead of time, it shouldn't surprise us when we have things that are hard that happen in our lives. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's any easier to go through those things. All right, it's still hard to go through the difficult things we face in life, but knowing in advance that you're going to go through something hard is what allows you to prepare how to handle that situation before you ever get there. It's the same reason why you train soldiers what to expect, how horrible it's going to be in war, so when they get there, they don't freak out. They know how to handle the situation properly. All right? And as a Christian... What helps us deal with the adversity and the difficulty we face in this life better than the rest of the world is, number one, knowing that God is going to be there to comfort you in whatever you face. And that whereas our ability to comfort each other in ourselves or try to get comfort from other things in this world is very limited. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he can comfort you in a way that nothing else ever could. Okay? So that's the first thing that we know. But then the second thing that God uses difficulty in our life for is that he teaches us lessons through the hard things, not only for your betterment, but so that you will better be able to serve others in your life or that you will better be able to be faithful in the ministry God has called you. Basically, the hard things you go through aren't wasted as a Christian. There's a purpose, a good reason for them, okay? 
Paul understood this as well, saying in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. And when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. And because Paul had experienced so much suffering in his life and seeing God keep that promise, those promises over and over again to be there with him, to see him through it, to comfort him in it, to see him come out of it all right and to see him use it in a way that it enabled Paul to be faithful in other people's lives. Because he'd seen that over and over again, he could sit there and say, when he willingly knew that this next season of my life is going to involve persecution, he could sit there and say, it's all right. I'll do it, even if it means I'm going to prison, even if it means I'm going to die, because God's going to be there, and it's not going to be wasted. He could say that in all faith. Theologian A.W. Tozer said, before God can use a man greatly, he must allow him to be hurt deeply. When we're comforted by God in our adversity, it's to bring you peace in your life, but not so much to make your life comfortable but rather to make you a comforter. Because it's only when you personally have been down into that pit and seen God bring you out of it and get you through it that you're going to sit there and be able to say to your kids or your spouse or your friends, I know this is hard and I'm here for you for it, but I can promise you this, God is going to be with you and he's going to bring you through it with all faith, because you've seen it in your own life time and time again. But you've got to go through it. And boy, has that proved to be true in my life. I'm going to be a little transparent with you in that one of the hardest things in being a pastor or a shepherd of God's people, really in any capacity, whether that's like in like a Bible study leader or a kids ministry worker, whatever, just kind of being involved with God's people is to have the people that you love and care about and invest in just up and leave. It's a super hard thing. And I, I don't think I would be doing this call in my life correctly if I didn't truly care about the people I was ministering to as God does. Because it's, that's what he does. I could certainly try to harden my heart and not care, but that wouldn't be reflective of God. But the problem with that is it leaves you susceptible to being hurt, Right? But the reason I can do that is knowing that God will be there and he's big enough to heal that hurt and he's also going to use it for some degree. And I've seen him do that time and time again. What he's taught me in the midst of the adversity that I've experienced in in being a pastor is so valuable because not only has God shown me that he'll personally comfort me through hurt, but he's also taught me how to love and show grace to agree that I couldn't have any other way, which is obviously pretty important traits as a Christian, right? We want to be like Jesus and he's shown the ultimate love and grace towards us 
And so if we want to learn to do that, whatever way he wants to teach us is something we should embrace. And the Lord has taught me how to forgive people that I felt betrayed by because they know not what they're doing. Just as the people that put Jesus on that cross, which includes you and me for our sins, knew not what they were doing, just as he said. And he forgave them. And he's taught me this to a greater degree by putting me in similar situations as he was and then reminding me, I went through this for you. Now you understand my love for you to an even greater degree. And now you understand what I really mean in showing that same love and grace towards others. Now, on a practical note, I really have learned that most people don't know what they're doing. Because it can feel like somebody put a knife in your back. But when you see them at Costco and they're like, hey, how you doing? What's up? Like nothing ever happened. And you're just like, well... As soon as I subside from the pain of pulling the knife out, I'll, I'll act like normal. No, but it's like you really understand. It's like, wow, they really have no idea. They just don't see it the same way. So it's it's hard to be mad at somebody instead of when they really don't understand. And that's what Jesus get at. They don't even know what they're doing. But this is such an important truth. If we don't have that proper perspective in the midst of difficulties we face in life so often, especially in our ministry of the Lord, what it'll lead to is us being faithless instead of faithful. So we got to understand when we're going through those difficult things, when it feels like, man, I can't believe the Lord's lying this happened. I'm just trying to be where he wants me to be. We understand that he's going to be there with you and it's not being wasted. It's being used for your betterment and it's teaching you stuff so that you can better do the things he's called you to do and minister to other people. Amen? That's the second thing. Important to remember that. Make sure we ask ourselves, how are we handling adversity, trials in ministry? Third, last thing, what is our motivation for ministry? In Leviticus 10, exciting things are happening, right? They've got the temple down, they're worshiping, or they've got the tabernacle, they're worshiping. God's spirit's coming down. Man, I could put myself in their position and get caught up. I I could get caught in the moment and go, dude, look at this. This is exciting. I want to be a part of what the Lord's doing. Man, I don't have time to go get fire from the altar. I'm just going to go jump in. I'm going to make my own fire. But that was the wrong motivation for serving the Lord is it led to them doing things the wrong way for the wrong reasons at the wrong time, which led to them getting burnt. See, sometimes we can enter into doing something for God. We can enter into ministry because we're like, well, that looks fun. Look at all the people that go to that Bible study or look at all the fruit that's coming from that ministry. I want to do that. Yeah. That looks really cool. I want to be a part of that. And in our enthusiasm, which there's nothing a matter with being enthused for serving the Lord. He doesn't want us to be miserable. And I think if we are miserable, it's usually indicative of something that he's trying to teach us because that's not where he wants us. But here's the thing. If we're letting our feelings and emotions guide us, they can be misleading. And what we can mistakenly do is light our own fire. And here's the thing, any fire you light yourself isn't going to last probably. Instead of being faithful to do what God actually wants us to be doing for him, we've in a sense put ourselves in a place of doing something where he had something else for us to do. But because of our getting caught up in the moment, we've kind of put ourselves in there. And what happens is when we get there, guess what? It isn't like you thought. It involves work. It's harder. I'm not seeing the results that that person got. 
What the heck? This person's actually criticizing me for being faithful to God, just doing what he's telling me to do. And you become discouraged. And you want to quit. You get burnt out. Instead of sticking it out and being faithful to serve the Lord. Jeremiah, he's a great example to us of somebody that was able to be faithful to God despite facing consistent adversity his whole entire ministry because he was serving God for the right reason. He preached 40 years to the nation of Israel as God's prophet. And guess how many people responded to him? Zero. Zero. What a hard ministry. And he found himself in a dungeon one day, discouraged, ready to throw in hell for good reason because his motivation, but because his motivation came from obedience to something God told him to do or just, I just want to be faithful to the God that saved me. That's why he was doing it. Because it came from that, he says in Jeremiah 29, but if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my house or in my bones. I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I can't not, I can't do it. Like he's like, because this is what the Lord's told me to do. I can't not do it. No matter how hard I try. He may have been burned out temporarily. This can happen to all of us at times. But because he wasn't creating his own fire, but rather it was the Lord behind the ministry in his life, the Lord was able to fire him up again so Jeremiah could remain faithful in what he called him to. He who calls you, he will surely do it. That's what it says. And there's only one thing that will keep you from burning out in your ministry to the Lord, regardless of whether you see fruit or not, regardless of whether you have any type of personal fulfillment or not, regardless of any adversity you might face or not. And it's fire from the brass altar where sacrifices were slain. And what is that symbolic of for us? The cross. The cross. Paul got this. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for the love of Christ controls us or the love of Christ compels us for it's the love of Christ that I do what I do because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me paraphrase that. I'm doing what I'm doing because God gave it all for me because Jesus was willing to die for me and I've never ever experienced a love like that in my life and how can I say no to him for anything he wants for me? That's what drove Paul and so too with us what will keep us fired up in our ministry to the Lord is seeing that Jesus Christ, the son of God, died for you so that your sins could be paid for and you could be forgiven of them and you could be brought into a relationship with him and experience his grace upon grace your whole entire life all the way into eternity. That is what will keep you serving Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, our motivation for ministry, it's never that you have to do anything. It's a heart of, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? I, I'll do anything you want. Whatever it is, no matter what the cost, I'm here and I'm willing. I just want to be with you. And wherever you want me is always going to be best. This principle of faithfulness that we're discussing today as the worship team comes up here, it really hits home for me as 
Eric mentioned without my permission at the very beginning of service. As, as I approach my five-year anniversary of being the lead pastor of the church, because even though, man, there's so many blessings and getting to be a part of God's people's lives and, and seeing change and seeing salvation and such a privilege. There's also, just like with anything else you do with God, lots of hardships. Lots of times where I was ready to throw in the towel and quit. But at the end of the day, I couldn't because the desire to be faithful with what God told me to do, just like Jeremiah, how could I not do this? How could I not do what you want, God? At the end of the day, that's what keeps me going. Because of what he's done for me. It's not because of any glory I might receive. Because like I told you guys. Some people will give you a pat in the back. Some won't. But it's not about my glory. It's about God's glory. I don't deserve any glory. It's despite my insufficiency that God shows himself strong. Every Sunday. Speaking to people. Sometimes about things I'm not even talking about. So I know it's him speaking to you. But he's faithful to honor his word. He loves you. He wants to meet you. I'm just the weak and foolish thing he chose to deliver his message. I'm not doing this because it's easier or comfortable by any means. Surely there's a lot of hard things I have to deal with. But I get to deal with them with Jesus. And I get to see how real he is and how faithful he is. And there's things he's taught me that I couldn't learn any other way. And if my goal is to be like Jesus and experience everything he has for me, it's worth it then. It's not because I put myself in this position or created my own fire, if you will, because honestly, there were other things that I felt much more called to that I would have chosen for myself had I the chance. But like God does so many times in your life, he's more than proven. I know better than you do. I know where you'll be most blessed. I'll know where you'll be most changed, where it'll be most fruitful for you. But we just got to trust and obey to figure those things out or let him show us those things. And I'm still here simply because the Lord's asked me to do it for him. And again, how could I say no to the one that has given me so much, the greatest gift I could ever receive in knowing him, my creator, and spending all eternity with him? How could I say no? So here's the thing. If you're feeling discouraged in your relationship with God, if you're feeling burnt out, if you're feeling like you want to quit, here's the thing. Maybe you've picked up some strange fire along the way in some way or another. One of those ways I've talked about, maybe your motivation for ministry is wrong. Maybe you're forgetting the reason for those hard things you're going through, not approaching them correctly. Maybe you're presenting the wrong things. You're presenting yourself or you're, you're expecting some sort of glory for yourself when really you got to be doing it for the Lord and his glory. Could be any of those things, but... The answer is, if you're feeling that way, is to go to the altar, is to go to the cross. Remind yourself of how much God loves you, how he's more than demonstrated that for you. And we're going to do that today by taking communion because this is what Jesus gave us this for, this ceremony to do in remembrance of him because he knew it would be so easy to forget that. The greatest thing that's ever been done for us, the greatest gift, and you think we could remember it, and we do in our heads, but it loses that magnitude. I mean, you remember that, that first time you really believed in Jesus, you really understood 
that you needed him to save you from your sin and you repented and you invited him in your life and everything just changed dramatically. You didn't even know what was happening, but you knew it was real. We don't have to lose sight of that. That's why we're to spend focused, intentional, make a focused, intentional effort to remember because everything comes out of that. Everything we do for God, everything he does in us. So during this last song, you guys can come up on your own, get the communion elements, go back, do them at your own discretion. We have uh, tables here. There's a table back there so you guys can line up. But you take that bread. If, they, if, you're, if you're somebody that's not a believer in Christ, first and foremost, you need to be a believer in Christ to do this. Because otherwise, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. This, the bread speaks of Jesus' body that was broken for us. It's not his actual body, but it's symbolic of it. We remember that his body was broken because, and, and if you know the account, it was gruesomely tortured. But that is what our sin deserves. That is the, a picture of the wrath and judgment of ju- God that he's justified in giving every single one of us for our sin, but Jesus loved you so much, I'll t- he said, I'll, t- I'll do it for you. I'll take it for you. And the juice is symbolic of his blood that was necessary to atone or painful is the idea. Pay the price for your sins. A sacrifice had to be made. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And the only one capable of that was the son of God who was equal with God because he's the only one that could live a perfect life. And he took upon the sins of the whole entire world, every sin you've ever done, every sin you will will ever do on himself and paid the price for it. So you're completely forgiven in God's eyes. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. The enemy wants you to feel guilty and condemned. But through faith in Jesus, you've been forgiven. And so if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, we're going to have a prayer team around the room. Come up and get prayer. We will lead you in a prayer to receive Christ. But for those of us that have done it, this is our opportunity to remember the greatest thing that's ever been done for us. And I encourage you during this song, do that. Do that with your kids. Do that with your spouse if you came with them. Pray together. Remember and take those elements. Go to the cross. Go to the altar. And that's, thing, that's the, the greatest thing you could do in being faithful to God. Because when you remember all he's done for you, it'll be an easy thing to do whatever he wants you to do for him. Amen? Amen. Lord God, I thank you so much for this opportunity just to remember your grace. It's displayed on that cross, Lord, the greatest act of love that has ever been shown to any of us. And Lord, I pray that if, if, there's, if we've lost sight of that in any way, if it's become, we've become insensitive to it, we've forgotten just how great a gift you've given us, how much you've done for us, how much you love us as shown by that. That's the proof of it, that right now you would help us experience that just like we did at the beginning, Lord. Maybe even in a fresh way, a deeper understanding of your love for us, Lord. Meet us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.